You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit GoCentralChurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Mike Corden. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And verse 7 is where we are going to be this morning. And uh, before we get to that, uh, some of you may know that we actually just had a group that went to New York City this past week uh, on a mission trip. We served with an organization called Urban Nations Outreach, uh, and they, they focus on ministering to uh, South Asian immigrants to the United States, and many of them uh, here for a very short amount of time. And, and one thing that was really cool about this trip is uh, it's, it's extremely immersive, right? You know, the, the Bible says we are to take the gospel to all nations. And it's pretty amazing when God brings the nations to your doorstep. So uh, there's, a, there's a place that we went at one time called the Chinese Mall. And, uh, and when it's called the Chinese Mall for a reason, uh, there is a food court there. And I have a picture of it uh, if you want to see this food court. So uh, we went to lunch here. And as you can see, every uh, restaurant there is not in English. Uh, we are there, and uh, a lot there is Korean, there's Mandarin, there's ja- excuse me, Japanese, there's all these different languages, and I don't know about you, but I have no idea what any of that says, right? <laughs> I have no idea what any of that says. Uh, it, it's, 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 so we go, and they're like, all right, hey, go have some lunch. And uh, this is a very nerve-wracking thing for me because I take my food very seriously. Uh, I, I tell my wife that if I was a superhero, uh, my superhero name would be Captain Comfort Zone. Uh, if I go to a restaurant and I find something I like, I get that thing every single time I go, right? Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but so we go and I am trying to figure out what to eat, as is the rest of our group, all 14 of us. And only thing I know to do is to see what place has the best pictures. So I'm just, okay, that looks like I might regret it later. Uh, that, I don't know, you know, I don't know. But I found a place that in small English letters right underneath it said ramen. And I was like, I know what that means, right? I, I know what that means. Uh, I knew what that meant uh, in high school. I knew what that meant in college. And I definitely know what that meant uh, uh, early on in marriage, right? We definitely know what ramen means. So we go and uh, I pick, you know, I just look at it and I was like, that looks good. And we pick it. And I will tell you, it was delicious. Uh, it was delicious. But there was this uncertainty, right? When, you know, uh, I know I, I talk about, uh, me and Kayla, we always talk about these interesting situations that would probably never happen, but what would we do in those situations? And, you know, I think to myself, if I was dropped in a country uh, where I did not lo- know the language, if I was dropped in, uh, in, a, in a, Spanish, a Spanish-speaking country, I feel like I could kind of figure my way out a little bit, right? I took Spanish in, in high school and in college, and I'm and by no means am I fluent, but I can at least figure out where I'm going. But if you dropped me in China, I would probably die there, right? Uh, because I have no idea how to navigate. And while this sounds, you know, this is a funny story, I share it with you because I thought it was hilarious, but two, I share it with you because this is how a lot of us approach Scripture, A lot of us approach scripture like this, like we've been dropped in the Chinese food court, have no idea how to navigate it, and we're just kind of hoping not to mess it up. You know, if you've been in church for five minutes, you've heard someone probably say, hey, you should read your Bible. 
And I, you know, if, I, if you don't know, uh, I'm the student and young professionals pastor here at Central. I work with uh, middle school, high school, and college and what I've learned is that there are a lot of students who are willing and they desire to read the Bible, but they have no idea how. Especially as our culture moves into a post-Christian, post-modern, truth-is-relative uh, type of culture, what we're going to see is that more and more people have no idea how to read their Bibles. Just like I had no idea how to find out what I was going to eat. And while I did not regret my decision, I will say, if you, if you sent me to that food court, I'm getting the exact same thing, right? <laughs> I'm not going to venture too far from what I know. Why? Because I found something that didn't, it didn't mess me up, and I'm going to stick with it. And what happens is we have a lot of Christians that live their lives this way. And when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, maybe you've heard it called uh, you know, the faith chapter or the hall of faith uh, or, you know, whatever uh, bad Christian puns we can think of, you know, with this. But we see all these incredible examples of what faith looks like in the life of a believer. Pastor Allen gave, uh, shared last week with us about the definition of faith. Right? It's this, it's this conviction of what God has done in the past that gives us assurance and hope of what he is going to do in the future. Right? Our faith is not blind, but our faith in the future is rooted in God's faithfulness in the past. And when we read this, this chapter, we, there's a tendency for us to make either one of two mistakes. The first mistake is that we focus on the amount of faith that these individuals had. And the second mistake is that we make the emphasis uh, primarily on the individuals themselves and what they did with their faith. Now, is it bad to do this? Of course not. It's not bad to, to look at these and to be encouraged and inspired by the amount of faith that they had. There's a great deal that we can learn from this. There's also a lot that we can be encouraged by, by seeing how God moved in their lives. However, we need to be very careful of this outside-in approach to reading the Bible. And we need to be very careful of this outside-in approach, especially when it comes to evaluating our faith. We mustn't allow a good point to keep us from the main point. And what is the main point? The main point is not the amount of faith, but rather the one in whom their faith is in. You see, it's not a large amount of faith that saves you, but it's a small amount of faith in a large God that saves you. And that's what we need to understand this morning. See, it can be very easy for us to come today and we're going to talk about the story of Noah. It can be very easy for us to come today and for me to say, hey, look at how much faith Noah had. Look at how this incredible amount of faith led to radical obedience. Go and do likewise. It'd be super easy for us to do that. But there's a problem with this type of inside, you know, outside-in approach to faith. Because we need to know where this kind of faith comes from. Because if, if all we're doing is saying, all right, hey, look at so-and-so, be like so-and-so, all we're doing is putting more emphasis on our efforts. All we're doing is putting more of a burden on ourselves, more of a burden on other people to do what they are incapable of doing in their own strength. So we have to understand, not necessarily, the, we need to not necessarily focus primarily on the fruit of this faith, but we need to focus on the root of this faith. Because if we're not careful, we'll look at our performance and seek to make it better than it is. 
If you start with the external fruit rather than the internal fruit, you know what you get? You get whitewashed tombs that on the outside are ornate and beautiful, but are inside are filled with dead men's bones. Or you get what Jesus would say in Matthew 5, 18, that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So what we want to do is not simply look at the fruit of Noah's faith, but we also want to look at the root of Noah's faith. And the root of Noah's faith is who God is. That is the root of Noah's faith. See, the gospel primarily has to do with the character of God. I'll give you an example. Me being a sinner is not that big of a deal if God isn't holy. Does that make sense? See, primarily the gospel has to do with the character and the attributes of who God is. And once we grasp the root, once we understand the root, once we understand who God is, then we'll start to see our faith take shape in ways that honor and glorifies God. So with that, we're going to look at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 11. So if you would stand with me as we read from the word of God this morning, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You may be seated. If you would pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I ask that as we approach your throne this morning, that we, we would do so humbly. God, that you would speak to us today. That God, that we wouldn't come with our that we wouldn't come to you with any preconceived notions, but Father, we would come to you ready, open, and willing to hear what you have to say. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time. I ask these things in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. So, what does this faith look like? What is this faith that starts with the root and then expresses the fruit? What does this look like? First thing we see in this passage is that it is a faith that fears. It is a faith that fears. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear. Let's just focus on that, in reverent fear. Like, why would the author of Hebrews use this phrase? Right? We, in modern you know, Christianity today, we don't really emphasize this idea of the fear of the Lord. We don't really f- focus on that a whole lot. Why, why wouldn't he just say respect or honor? Well, I mean, why would he use this word fear? I mean, why not say in love? Noah, in love for God, constructed an ark. I mean, after all, 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So why this emphasis on love? What does this mean? One thing we need to remember is that the verse says, in reverent fear. See, if your fear of God does not include reverence, then you have an improper fear of the Lord. This does not mean that we live our lives running away in terror. This means that we have respectful fear of who our God is. The Greek use of this phrase here in Hebrews is literally to stand in awe and submission. Also, to act cautiously. I'll give you an example. Growing up, uh, I always knew. Uh, so my dad uh, studied martial arts when he was younger. And, you know, growing up, you know, I hear the stories and different things like that. And, but also in my household, we would wrestle all the time. 
right? We would wrestle all the time. And uh, as, you know, I got older and my siblings, we all got bigger and older. My mom grew more and more anxious that we were going to either hurt one another or hurt something in her house. She's probably more concerned of us hurting something in her house, right? Um, But, you know, we would do this all the time. But I always knew in the back of my mind that there's only so far I'm going to go with this whole wrestling thing because I'm aware of what my dad could do to me if he wanted to, you know? And I was, I was aware of this, and it kind of put, put this righteous fear within me a little bit. But I'll say this also. Growing up as a child, there was times where we would go to some kind of sketchy areas, right? If you've ever been to downtown Orlando when the sun goes down, you know what I mean? And I'll tell you that this fear that I had that kind of put somewhat of a distance with my dad when we would wrestle is the same fear that brought me as close as possible when I was in areas where I was uncertain, See, that, that fear that put, this, that put this reverent distance to an extent is the same fear that when it was time for me to go through sketchy areas and shady areas, it was the thing that made me as close as I possibly could be. And that's the kind of fear we're talking about. Not a fear that causes us to run from God, but a fear that causes us to run to him. I believe there's incredible intentionality with this phrase, this description. Think about the story of Noah for a minute. If you don't know the story of Noah... God comes to Noah in a day where there is sin all over the world. Genesis 6 describes it as, it says that the thoughts of men were always evil continuously. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God, that he was a man that he was righteous, he was blameless in his generation, and because of this, he found favor in the eyes of God. And God came to him and said, Noah, I'm going to destroy all human life on the earth. I'm going to wipe the earth clean with my judgment. But I'm going to save you and your family. So Noah was commanded to instruct an ark. You see, Noah had reverent fear of God because he knew who God was. His reverent fear, his faith that feared was born out of a revelation of knowing who God is. You see, Noah's faith in God led to a reverent fear of God. And if you were to ask me, what is the main thing that is missing in modern American Christianity? I would say it is a reverent fear of God. We have people that put on their best behavior on Sundays, but live just like the world Monday through Saturday. We have evangelists and megachurch pastors caught in scandals. You want to know why this happens? It happens because of a lack of fear. It happens because of a lack of fear of the Lord. It happens because people fear people more than they fear God. And why do we have people that do not fear the Lord? It's because we have churches filled to the brim with people that do not know God. We have fallen so in love with the idol of life application. That the first thing we do when we read the Bible is the first question we ask is, how does this apply to me? And what happens is we have a lot of people who live very moral lives, but they know nothing of God. Because the first thing they think of is, how does this apply to me? When the first thing that we should see is, what does the word of God reveal to me about who God is? And based off that revelation of who God is, that will impact the way you live. I guarantee it. 
If you want to see people change the way that they act, if you want to see moral behavioral modification, show people who the Lord is. I don't need all the, you know, five tips on how to live a better life. Show me who God is. And based off that, that's going to heavily influence how I interact with people. Think back to Jesus on the cross. He's hanging on the cross with thieves on either side of him. Do you remember this story? What does the thief, one thief say? He ridicules him. One thief is, while dying next to him, is ridiculing Christ. And what does the other thief say? What was his rebuke? Let's look at it. Luke 23, verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same condemnation? What was the focus of the rebuke? Did the other thief say, you know, that's not very kind? Did the other thief say, you know, that's not very Christ-like of you? The other thief said, do you not fear God? See, this thief dying on the cross understood something that we need to understand. That if we are going to be obedient as a church, it is going to start by us having a proper understanding of who God is. If we want to have, if we want to be obedient in missions, obedient in evangelism, obedient with the stewardship of what God has given us, it's going to start when we get on our knees and have a righteous fear of the Lord. You see, it was the root of a lack of fear that led to the fruit of disobedience. People disobey God because they do not fear him. And they do not fear him because they do not know him. You show me a church filled with people that have a reverent fear of God, born from a right knowledge of him, and I will show you a church that does incredible things for the kingdom of God. Now remember that this fear is not something that we dread. It's not something that we, that we live in terror. Rather, it's something that we embrace with joyful reverence. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Every time we, whenever we talk about somebody is fearful or they have anxiety, they're afraid, we always say that, you know what, they lose sleep, right? But notice, this isn't, this isn't a fear of God that makes us lose sleep. This is a fear of God that causes us to sleep satisfied. Psalm 112, verse 1, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. See how scripture describes this, that true joy is found in a proper knowledge of God. True joy is found in a righteous and reverent fear of him. The word blessed in Psalm 112 is translated to mean happy. See, the fear of God leads to joy in God. The more you know about God, the more joyful you will be. Now, this is going to flow into the next point, but I want us to pay attention to this. That often we believe that we need to obey and then we become joyful, right? Like if you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're struggling to find joy, if you're struggling in this area, if you're, whatever it may be, then you know what? You need to be obedient and then you will be joyful. But I think the scripture actually teaches the opposite. That as we grow in our knowledge of God, so will our joy. That we are joyful because of the surpassing greatness of what we know to be true about him. 
And the more I get to know him, the more joyful I am in what I know. And that joy is the fuel for my obedience. I obey because I long to obey. I obey because I want to. I obey him because I love him. Do not look at obedience as a means to the end of, jo- of, that, of your joy. Rather, see joy in the knowledge of God as the fuel for your obedience. If you struggle to obey God, get to know him more. But not only do we see that it is a faith that fears, but we see, logically, the next thing is it is a faith that obeys. The natural response to a heart that knows God is to obey him. In the story of Noah, we see that God speaks to Noah. He tells Noah that he is going to destroy all life on earth and that Noah is to build an ark. In the story, we see the single greatest act of judgment in the history of the world. I mean, we see, if we we read scripture, we've seen God destroy cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. We've seen God's judgment on individuals like Ananias and Sapphira and Uzzah. But never before and never again until he returns will we see God judge the entire world in such a final and dramatic way. He tells Noah to build an ark for him and his family. Now, when we read this, our mind instantly goes to a boat, right? Why? Because, well, if you grew up in church or if you've been, even if you've just been around church, you've heard of Noah and the ark. You know, you see the paintings of this boat and like the giraffe's neck is sticking out the window, you know. (laughs) It's like this beautiful scene, like Noah's on his yacht with his family and friends. We've seen this, and you know, because we know the story, but here, when Noah hears an ark, when God says build an ark, the, the thought is literally a box. A box. Build a box. Think about this. God tells Noah, hey, I'm going to destroy the entire world, but don't worry, build a box for you and your family. Literally, the, the, the same word used here is actually the same word that we use, was used when uh, talking about Moses being placed in the basket when he, was, when he was an infant. See, God is telling Noah to build a box for you and your family. And this sounds crazy. Sounds absurd. But what does Noah, excuse me, what does Noah do? Genesis 6.14 says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. You see, Noah knew that God is faithful. He's faithful to his word. And because he will do what he says he will do, Noah needs to build himself an ark. Because you need to see that there's two promises in the story of Noah. Yes, God promises to protect Noah. And that is a good promise, amen? That is something that we cling to as Christians. That we have the promises of God that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. But that is not the only promise in the story of Noah. Because yes, one promise is that God is going to protect Noah. But the other promise is that God is going to destroy the earth. When we say that God is faithful to his promises, this is good news. It's good to know that God will always follow through on what he says he's going to do. However, at the same time, this should be a sobering reality. Because while God provides assurance of hope for Noah and his family, God also provides assurance that the world is going to be destroyed. You see, 
You see, the ark is a symbol of protection for Noah and his, excuse me, and his family. But it is also a symbol of the coming judgment for everyone else. See, God does not lie. So just as much as you and I, if we are in Christ, we have assurance of eternity with him. Those who are outside of him have the assurance of hell. Because God is faithful. And that's a sobering reality. The knowledge that God is faithful to his promises should motivate us to take the gospel to people that need it so desperately. 44,000 people, over 44,000 people die every day without even hearing the gospel. Without even hearing the gospel. And if you believe this to be true, then how can you not lead it? How can it not lead you to obediently share this news with people? If you truly believe that God is going to judge the world one day and that it is only through a relationship with the God through his son, Jesus Christ, that they will ever have hope for eternity, how could this not motivate you? If you have people in your life that you love, how much do you love them? Penn Jillette, he's a famous magician from the magic duo of Penn and Teller. And also he's an outspoken atheist, if you did not know that. Um, and this is actually a quote that maybe you've heard before. But this is him talking. He, was, uh, he had someone come up to him after a show and give him a New Testament Bible and very lovingly just share with him, tried to share the gospel with him. And this is what he said afterwards. He says, I've always said that if you, if I, sorry, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? You see, Noah didn't simply believe that the flood was coming. His belief led to action. James 2.17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let me ask you a question. What would have happened if God had came to Noah and said all of this and Noah said, you know what, God, I believe you. You know what? Hey, thanks for letting me know. I appreciate that. And then he turned around and didn't build the ark. What would happen? Noah and his family would have died alongside everyone else. He would have died alongside everybody else. Because his supposed faith was worthless. Likewise, if your faith in Christ does not lead to obedience to God, then your faith is no different than unbelief. Again, it is important for us to remember, though, that we are not saved because of our obedience. Your obedience does not make your faith true. But it is your true faith that will lead to obedience. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. However, our obedience is the fruit of our faith, which springs forth 
from the root of a knowledge of God. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. So we see one, it is a faith that fears. And out of that faith that fears, it leads to a faith that obeys. And thirdly, we see it is a faith that condemns. Let's go back to the verse. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Now, I'll be honest, when reading this, it's kind of taken aback by it. You, know, kind of, you, know, you see this incredible example of faith, and then we see that by his obedience, he condemned the world. Like, is that something that I want as a Christian? Is that something that I want? Is that something that I want is to be a part of condemning the world? Is that something, I mean, what exactly does this mean? Like, do we have any account of Noah publicly preaching or publicly condemning others? No. Really, I mean, we don't see this. Actually, if you read the story, Noah never speaks. He just does what he's told. So what, excuse me, what does this mean when it says that, that Noah condemned the world through his obedience? I believe that this is showing, I believe that what this is showing is that Noah's obedience was not done in isolation. But his obedience was lived out where the world around him could see it. Noah wasn't necessarily going out and talking all this talk. Noah was living in obedience in a way that the world around him could observe it. Why do I say this? Because a lot of us, in an effort to remain friends with the world, are perfectly content to obey God as long as it can be done in private and out of the sight of others. We're totally fine being obedient to God as long as others don't see it. My friends, this is not obedience that comes from true faith. We are commanded to live lives of holiness before the world. Not to live like the world. We are called to live a life set apart from the world. Now, we are in the world, of course. We take the gospel to people. We don't, we don't stay in our Christian bubble. We engage the darkness. We don't run from it. However, at the same time, we are the same person in the world Monday through Saturday as we are in church on Sunday. Matthew 5, 14 and 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is not simply a suggestion. This is a command. Don't think that your private obedience will overshadow your public disobedience. I'll give you an example. I'm going to go out tonight and get hammered with the boys, but that's okay because I'm going to do a family devotion tomorrow night. That does not work. That is not a sign of true faith. That is not a faith that has sprung forth from the root of a right knowledge of God. That is a faith that seeks the fruit apart from the root. That's a faith that seeks morality and good perception over a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
And that is not the gospel. Again, who are we fearing here? God or people? Galatians 1.10, for, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, Noah obeying God shined light on the disobedience of others. He didn't even have to say it. His faith influenced his practice. It moved him to prepare the ark. His belief condemned the unbelief of others. I love this quote from Matthew Henry. Good examples either convert sinners or condemn them. I'll say that again. Good examples either convert sinners or condemn them. Now we see that real faith is a faith that, glorif- that real faith that glorifies God is a faith that fears, is a faith that obeys, it is a faith that condemns, but most importantly, it is a faith that saves. Let's read this verse one more time. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, there's a greater truth in the the story of Noah. Did God protect Noah? Absolutely, he did. But what did God protect Noah from? God protected Noah from God. You see that? I mean, what what is the ark necessary for? Why is the ark even there? It's because God's wrath is about to be poured onto the world. See, God is saving Noah from God himself. Look about how this salvation came about. First thing is that Noah was warned. Verse Hebrews eleven seven. What does it say? By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. You ever stop to think about this truth that God warned Noah about something that he did not have to warn him about? What did Noah do that deserved him being saved? If you read the story, what happens right after all this happens? What happens when they, the, the ark, it, it lands, right? And then they get off the boat. And what does Noah do? He plants a vineyard and then he gets wasted. A great example. Noah was not deserving of this. Why would God do this? I mean, couldn't God easily have just wiped everyone out and then started over with Noah? He could have. Couldn't he have just wiped everyone out and said, you know what, I'm just going to start over. God warned Noah because God is good and loving. That's the only explanation we could come up with. You see, we could so easily forget this fact that God owes salvation to no one. He owes salvation to no one. Noah had done nothing to deserve God's mercy and grace, but he offered it to him because of his goodness, not Noah's. Salvation is made possible because of the goodness of God, not because of yours. And that's good news, because if salvation is based off your goodness or my goodness, then we'll never have it. We'll never have it. See, the difference between heaven and hell 
is not that heaven is full of people who are not sinners and hell is full of people who are sinners. The difference is that heaven is filled with sinners who've been forgiven. That is what we're talking about here. So often we're, we are expected, so often we expect God to act based on our goodness. But we need to remember that God acts based on his goodness. The ark was not deserved. The ark was a gift. And lastly, we're going to look at, I want to look at the specifics of the ark. Now, I'm not going to dive in too much detail. But not only did God warn Noah, but he also saved him. However, Noah was not saved according to his own will or his own desire or his own efforts. In order for Noah to be saved, he must be hidden in the ark. While the wrath of God is being poured out onto the world, where was Noah and his family? They were hidden within the ark. If you spend time, you'll look at the dimensions of the ark. God gives very specific dimensions and instructions on how the ark was to be built. And even today, the ratios used for the ark are considered to be the standard for modern shipbuilding. A ratio of about six to one. If the ark was too, was too long and short, then it would have sank. If the ark was, was, was too tall, then it would have toppled over. Every requirement had to be specifically met in order for the ark to be adequate for the safety of those inside. If, if the ark had been anything other than what God had explicitly explained it to be, then all would have died. It had to meet the specifications in order to fulfill the purpose of saving those inside. Likewise, there is only one that can save your soul. You see, because just as the ark had to meet the requirements, there is only one way for us to be saved from the wrath of God. And it's not for us building a boat. It's not us attending church. It's not us memorizing scripture. It is by putting our faith in the ark of Christ. It's not our own efforts. It's not the fact. If you were to build an ark to save yourself from the wrath of God, it would fall to pieces. But it's by falling at the feet of Christ and saying, I have nothing else. I have no efforts that are worthy. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because God is the one that we have sinned against. God is the one that establishes the terms by which we can be saved. And those terms have been met only by Christ. Genesis 7, 16. I love this verse. It says, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And listen to this. And the Lord shut him in. I love that phrase. Because when you're saved by the blood of Jesus, when you enter into the refuge of Christ, the Lord shuts you in. And nothing in this world can touch you. Neither height nor depth. No power, principalities, the, the, the spirit of darkness. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And while there is a promise of coming judgment, we have a greater promise that that judgment was fulfilled on the cross. 
that I don't have to face that judgment, that I don't have to worry about my efforts or my goodness or my obedience is because it was met by Jesus. And what does Hebrews say? That not only did Noah's obedience condemn the world, but it made him an heir of righteousness. He wasn't just saved, he was considered righteous. You and I weren't just taken from death to life and considered neutral. We were taken from death to life and considered righteous. Putting us in a place we do not deserve because we have a God that loves us more than we could possibly fathom. And if you are in this room and you do not know him, trust in Jesus. How can I be sure? How can I be sure that he is faithful to me? Because I have seen him been faithful in the past. I've seen him be faithful in the past and that gives me confidence and assurance that he will be faithful in the future. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time, God. I thank you for the ark. I thank you for the blood of Jesus. The Father, our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. God, I thank you. God, I ask if there's anyone in this room that does not know you, the Father, that you would call them to yourself. Help them to stop placing their trust in their efforts. God, help them to know who you are and bring them to a saving knowledge of you. Father, we thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit online at gocentralchurch.org.